Take a network break. It's fall, so we've got a fresh batch of apple cider virtual donuts. This week, we're going to cover new 25-gig switches from Arista, our first sighting of a Wi-Fi 7 AP, a forthcoming MFA requirement from AWS, breach repercussions, or the lack thereof, and more. Uh, we're sponsored today by Backbox. Backbox is a network automation platform for configuration management, device backups, and OS upgrades. They're now adding network vulnerability management. This new capability is purpose-built for network teams, so you can quickly discover and prioritize network OS vulnerabilities, and then reliably automate patching and upgrades. Grades. You can find out more at backbox.com slash packet pushers. And then stay tuned after the news. We have a Tech Bytes podcast. We're going to talk about techniques to improve user experience and application performance while also securing end users' applications and devices. Our sponsor is Palo Alto Networks. We're going to talk about how Palo Alto Networks is integrating technologies like remote browser isolation and application acceleration into their cloud-delivered security offering. Uh, last but not least, we've updated and refreshed our human infrastructure newsletter. Each week, we scour the internet for the best tech blogs, how-tos, and IT news. You can sign up for free at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. Uh, we've also got a Slack channel. If you want to join, you can chat with other network engineers. You can ask questions, maybe even vent a little if you need to, or, or just hang out. That's also free, and you can join at packetpushers.net slash Slack. And Greg, that's where you find uh, volunteers to come onto your heavy networking roundtable shows. Yeah, we've been doing, returning to sort of where we were a decade ago, having roundtables with just other engineers, you know, people in the real world talking about what they're doing every day. So I'm planning on running those every second month or so, maybe monthly. We'll see how it runs. Uh, and what I do is find willing victims, I mean, volunteers uh, in the Slack channels. Uh-huh. And uh, then we record something and talk about it. So if you've ever wanted to be on the show, this is your chance. Jump into the Slack channel and uh, let me know by a DM that you want to join. I'm just about to set up the next one to record in the next few weeks. Um and uh, got to have a microphone and you've got to be available at the time that we scheduled to record it, which is usually a Thursday around about uh, 1900 British time uh-huh. or about, uh, I think that's around 1800 GMT. So fits into most people in the Northern Hemisphere. So if you ever wanted to be on, I'd love to hear what you're talking about in the real world. Come on the show. We will make sure you don't look stupid. That's my job. Right. Yeah. Bring a topic and uh, have a conversation. All right, we'll get to the news, but first we have uh, one FU uh, follow-up. Last week we covered an announcement from HPE Aruba about a hardware-based user experience sensor that supports Wi-Fi 6E. A listener wrote in to say, we missed an interesting feature. Uh, this listener wrote, there is now an Android app version of the sensor, so you don't even need to buy hardware anymore, and a version for installation on Zebra handheld terminals, uh, which are typically used in warehouse or distribution centers. Anyone who's had experience running large warehouse Wi-Fi networks will appreciate that. Overall, he says it's a great tool and not overly expensive. Uh, they also write... I'm not an Aruba shill, so I'll mention some other products in this space, including NetBees, uh, which uses Raspberry Pi as a remote sensor, uh, and Cisco DNAC, which can convert a small hospitality Wi-Fi AP into a similar type of sensor to do synthetic testing. So uh, we appreciate the FU, uh, the follow-up. Uh, we always like additional information, especially on things we miss like that, like the Android app. Mm-hmm. And it should be noted that, in fact, the tech bite on today's show is Palo Alto talking about its version of this. Uh, so any SD-WAN appliance, any firewall, you can start to use them as DEM. Although I don't know if they actually have uh, quite so many sensors co- out there yet. Fortinet also has the same sort of feature, but still, both of those are still in the earlier in the cycle. Um, I've heard some people talk about the DNAC version, where it can convert a, a hospitality Wi-Fi into a sensor. But some people have said to me that the pricing around that makes that a little difficult because you have to buy a whole AP, then you have to buy a whole license, and then you have to buy another license to be able to run it as a sensor. And that seems to stack up the cost to make it less than, well, less than useful, perhaps in the long run. 
Yeah, I'll throw in another pitch for NetBees as well. If you are looking for, if you've got some uh, remote site or a branch or mm. something where you're hoping to do some performance monitoring, uh, maybe test some SaaS applications regularly, they they do have an inexpensive mm. option to do that. So so check it out. Well, the really good use case for this is when you've got an SD-WAN network over here and you've got a heritage routed underlay network over here. Maybe you've got one that's using this teleco and this one's using this telco. You know, you've got different networks and you want to weld them all together. Then you get go for this type of solution so that if you've got you know, a network which is managed by multiple parties, you can start to get a single overview. That's where these sensors come very, very useful yeah. um, because you've got to get outside of the hardware to get that monitoring because, the you know, the routers or the, you know, whatever the devices are that are in that location, you may not own or be able to manage. And that's where these solutions become particularly useful. Yep. And as always, if you have a comment, a, a correction, or just want to let us know about something, you can hit us up at packetpushers.net slash FU. Uh, we do love to get the feedback and the follow-up. So uh, don't be shy. Okay. All right, on to the news. Arista is announcing a new series of 25 gig ultra low latency layer one switches. They're targeting financial institutions, brokerages, and high frequency traders. Uh, in these environments, nanoseconds matter. So these L1 switches are specially designed to get frames into and out of the switch at insane speeds. That is with as little as five nanoseconds of latency. Mm. These are quite interesting because this was a product that I think Arista acquired somewhere around the mid-2010s. 2018. 2018. And it was an Australian company, and they've been building these uh, for quite some time. And Arista decided that its journey into financial institutions or electronic trading would be suited if they brought these on. Now, these are the FPGA silicon field programmable gate arrays. And the idea here is that the core of the engine there is actually a programmable chip. Because this market is so small and so specialized, you can't actually go and make an ASIC for this. The numbers don't work to go out and design an ASIC and run a very small production run. So what they're doing here is using FPGAs. And this has been around for a very long period of time. We've seen this idea of L1 switching has been in various incantations over the last 30 years. Customers were using them for L1 patch panels at one point. I don't know if you remember that. Mm -hmm. There was a person who used to do it, and the idea was that you could programmable patch panel using this FPGA type applications and so forth. So this is all in a theme. By using FPGAs, and if you're going to focus on performance, like a particularly low latency, reducing latency, then what you do is you rip out all the features that waste time. Of course, when a frame goes into a switch, it goes in and gets inspected. If you've got to look for the .1Q header, or maybe the Q and Q header, or the MPLS tag, and you've got a, you've got all of these lookup steps in the pipeline. And mm. then if you've got to rewrite the frame, add tags, strip frags. So all of these things add latency. And that's why, you know, in a normal switch, you're looking at something like 50 milliseconds, 75 nanoseconds milliseconds for it to go through. Whereas these switches say, well, why am I doing all of this? Why don't I just get rid of all of this and just program this pipeline for the absolute minimum? And so the big thing here, I think that they call out here, particularly is reducing FEC. Eliminating FEC, in fact. Eliminating FEC. Yes. And weirdly, that's actually done in the optical, right? That's done in the SFP. Yep. Right? So what they're saying is that when you actually, the, the forward error correction is actually being done in the SFP module. So they must be changing the firmware there and saying, well, you don't need it at 25 gig if the network is unloaded. So that is, I don't need to check for errors if I've got very high quality, et cetera, et cetera. So what I'll do is just take that code out of the SFP and I can shave some <laughs> nanoseconds off the transmission time and the decode time because I don't have to, because uh, you can only calculate the forward error correction when you've got the whole packet, right? Because right. that's when you do the checksum. And so that adds nanoseconds of latency and you have to read the whole packet before you can calculate the checksum. So really this is about, um, you know, doing some very weird optimized things for an absolutely niche market that Arista wants to get into. 
and uh, seem to be doing enough to continue to invest money in new software features and new hardware to support it. Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, they are FPGA-based switches. Um, Arista does offer a software package you can run on these FPGAs that, that they call it Switch App. Uh, if you do need a select set of L2 and L3 switching features, uh, you can get them uh, with this app that's designed to run on the FPGA. But in general, I think most customers are just saying, you know, fire this fire this frame through as fast as they can. Uh, one mm -hmm. of the switches also includes a Tofino ASIC. Uh, if you are you know doing some other L2, L3 uh, pipeline processing, you can get a switch with the FPGA and the Tofino ASIC. So that was interesting. And again, this this FEC thing, uh, eliminating forward error correction, they said uh, having FEC could introduce as much as 250 nanoseconds of latency, which, you know, for most traffic isn't a big deal. But for these specialized use cases, uh, they'd said, you know, just we'll just eliminate FEC and, and, and if there's an occasional yeah. error, we'll deal with it. But uh, we, we want the, the latency gone. Yeah, what I think is happening here is... Um... Arista publishes an FPGA developer kit here with a series of libraries, and you can actually run your trading app on the FPGA, mm -hmm. right? So you can actually, you know, trade. <laughs> you still have a, an external app doing all the various things, but you can actually set the rules down into the FPGA so you can get as close as possible. And there is alpha, as the traders call it. If you can see somebody <laughs> placing an order and then put a buy order in that drive them out of the market, you can generate small amounts of profit per transaction, enough to justify doing it, apparently. Apparently. So apparently. they have teams of developers and by doing the the you know, doing the actual trading once the rules have been laid in into the you know, from a, from an asset fundamentally, you know, from the from the silicon. So that is where the the cases are these. I do believe there's other people who are doing FPGAs and loading in firewall rules and various different pieces. So custom apps, if you like. So partner applications, as they talk about, and you can do various uh, network functions. So one of them is that they actually duplicate out the packets so that you have a copy of everything that went through the switch or certain ports on the switch. If you want to monitor the transactions and do create an audit trail, which is required in some cases. And so you have all of these different uses. These are quite specific in a vertical. They're not industrial, but they are sort of in that same sort of niche vein, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And just to sum it up, Arista was offering these switches uh, at 10 gig. Uh, these are the first 25 gig to come onto the market. And they made a big deal about 25 gig doesn't have the same performance problems as 10 gig because it's faster. You've got no, but you don't, you might not hit the buffers, right? right? Which sort of suggests that low latency trading isn't a bandwidth problem, but if you can go up to 25 gig, you reduce time on the wire and then you have less problems because the packets don't sit in the buffer because there's more bandwidth around, right? Yeah, they said the big issue was uh, generally that there are spikes in trading sort of at the start of the day or when a news story drops or something. And with 10 gig, you might have to buffer something. And so with 25, uh, having that extra headroom means you will tend to eliminate the need for buffering when there are these uh, traffic trading spikes. Yeah, so that's my rule. More bandwidth solves all problems. <laughs> <laughs> you only need band you only need buffers and queues when you haven't got enough bandwidth. So. <laughs> I stand by that. <laughs> All right. Links in the show notes if you want more details on these specialized switches, uh, but we will move on. Uh, so it begins. Uh, Ruckus has announced Wi-Fi 7 access points. The Wi-Fi standard 802.11be isn't yet officially ratified by the Wi-Fi Alliance, uh, but that hasn't stopped Ruckus from releasing the R770AP. Uh, as with Wi-Fi 6E, Wi-Fi 7 takes advantage of 2.55 and the 6 gigahertz bands. Wi-Fi 7 also doubles channel bandwidth and doubles the number of MU-MIMO spatial streams from 8 to 16. That's also introducing a new feature called multi-link operation that lets a client talk to an AP using multiple radios and different frequency bands at the same time. Yeah, I'm, I am, you know, all the vendors are making a big deal about the Wi-Fi 7 revolution. And it feels like three months ago, we were talking about Wi-Fi 6E. And it feels like beginning of the year, we we're talking about Wi-Fi 6. So this yes. whole iteration has happened inside of 12 months. 
and I can't. I just can't get the feeling here. You know, standards aren't complete. They seem to be fixed enough or finalized enough that people are willing to create chipsets for them. And then yes. I think there's more to come. I don't think the Wi-Fi standard is actually like uh, stable in the sense that there are more features to come. The get the thing, the sense I get from reading up on Wi-Fi from the various vendors, I put a link in to an Intel white paper talking about it, as well as links to what Wi-Fi wants you to know about Wi-Fi Seven. And the whole thing I sort of get the sense of is that Wi-Fi Seven, there's sort of like there's this first version, it's like an alpha release, and if you're really really keen, you can run into it. But I think it'll be like 5G. If you wait a couple of years, there'll be a much more complete set of portfolio standards like that do more and more as time goes by. So I wouldn't be really rushing into this. However, if you actually need things, the specific features that Wi-Fi 7 seems to work, which is niche on niche on niche, they're going for uh, one thing they're talking about is ultra low latency. Uh-huh. And another one is increased bandwidth with 320 megahertz channels in the six gigahertz spectrum which says theoretically it talks about being able to do up to 30 or 40 gigabits per, se- per second, yep. but the current version has a theoretical maximum of 5.8. That's what I'm saying about if you wait long enough. And practically it's probably much less than that. So you're probably talking like three, you know, two, three, three and a half gigabits per second in reality. And of course this all assumes that your Wi-Fi 7 deployment is optimally installed and your uplinks are fast enough. So your five gigabit per second Ethernet, remember that standard that came out, the 2.5 gig and five gig Ethernet standards? Right, yes, for access, which is- fundamentally obsolete, as I predicted. (laughs) It's a complete waste of time. We'll just like to take a lap around, a victory lap around here saying 2.5 and five gig Ethernet solved a problem for less than four years, I want to say. Could be five for the sake of the argument. So all new people who raced out and invested in 2.5 and five gig when I told you you should have gone to 10 gig, Thanks, I told you so. I'll yeah. I'll accept your apologies by email. Send them over. Yeah, it sounds like uh, we can also maybe put uh, the emergence of Wi-Fi seven E uh, on the uh, predictions list at some point if there are additional features that will be rolling out uh, in the standard over time. Yeah, well, you know, this is what we see now is standards. They're sort of like a first version of the standard, and then they continue to develop technologies inside of it, and they add them on in schedules or supplementals. So five G is already up to R seventeen or something, mm-hmm. for example. So the initial and that the standard will continue to add schedules as they agree to them and you know and the standard improves quite significantly over time. So in that sense, I'm less keen, you know, I don't know enough about Wi-Fi. And if I you wanted to know more about the Wi-Fi 7 standard, I would head over to the Heavy Wireless podcast on the Packer Pushes Network. And Keith Parsons there, of course, who is, you know, almost a legend in the Wi-Fi industry, will be able to give you more on the inside of that. Also, a bit of a clap back to Ruckus. Their website doesn't support RSS, so it's unlikely I'll be covering them again in the foreseeable future because I can't be bothered checking their website. And if they don't support RSS, they, they don't want me to look at it, basically. Okay. Uh, back to that uh, you know, theoretical throughput up in the, the 40 gigabit per second range. Um, Ruckus says uh, actual throughput will be around 5 gigabits per second. I think this is primarily due to limitations on the client side. So that is also the other part of the Wi-Fi puzzle. Your mm. APs might be on the new standard, but it usually takes a little bit longer for the client side devices, the PCs, the smartphones, whatever to catch up. So keep no, that in it, mind as you think about your investments. Uh, well, if I think about smartphones and laptops, a lot of them are power constrained. And like, who really wants more than five? Gigabits per second to the desktop, to the edge at the moment. Right. So this is what I mean. Like, yeah, sure, you solved a problem by making Wi-Fi run at 46 gig per second. That might be good for point-to-point links or, you know, sort of, you know, some sort of mesh capability eventually, if ever. I don't know. Seems It seems all a bit niche and a bit, I wouldn't be rushing to install it is what I think I'm saying. Convince me otherwise. 
Yeah, hit us up on an FU if you've got uh, an argument for it. Uh, but we'll, look, plenty of links in the show notes if you want to read up on it. Uh, AWS is going to require root users of an AWS organization's management account to use multi-factor authentication. This will start in the middle of 2024. AWS is adding MFA to the most privileged accounts is a simple, effective way to prevent unauthorized access. Uh, AWS is going to eventually extend that requirement to individual accounts over time, uh, and you don't have to wait until next year to get started. AWS already offers a free USB security token to customers if you want to add MFA that began offering this free token back in 2021. Finally, I really, I, you know, this is the sort of thing that, you know, if you're going to outsource your data center to somebody else and you just use a single password to access stuff in someone else's physical facility, really, you know, it, it, this is something that, if, this idea of using multi-factor authentication, particularly token-based, is is well overdue. And and I think you should be working on it everywhere, not just in your data center, technically you know, your route here, this is your virtual data center, but also in your apps, everything really. And we should be using it for routers and all sorts of things. So yeah, I think obviously AWS had this in the works given that they started offering this uh, multi-factor free token uh, back in 2021, um, now making it a requirement second half of 2024. Um, I do think, do you remember how gas stations used to attach like a hubcap or a block of wood to the bathroom key? Our IT yeah. department's <laughs> going to have to do the same thing with this MFA token. <laughs> you can have lots of tokens, Drew. You don't just have one. Who's you got the have... token? Does Cheryl have Who's the token? Got... Yeah, you don't get one because of the way they work. You can actually have as many as you think is realistic. You don't, you know, you don't want a box of them, like a hundred of them. They have access to the core. But well, it sort it, of defeats everything. the purpose if you have a box of it does, laying but around, you can so. add and delete them. You can basically add and delete. You can go and get new keys cut with reasonable simplicity. Sure. So it's not, and they're not hugely expensive. They're like 50 bucks a token or something, even if you go and choose a third party one. Right. Instead of going with the AWS one. So, yeah. I, I just like the image of a hubcap on your token just to keep track of it. Well, it has been done. We used to hand around a, uh, <laughs> one of those things that used to generate a little number. Yeah, yeah. And those and are R S A uh uh-huh. RSA key token. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to have one of those with a block of wood. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm right. You're saying I'm right. absolutely right. Yes, we did used to. I also know of a company where they actually put put an RSA token and then they focused a camera on it so that we could read it from remote. <laughs> There's always a workaround. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And and the first time they did it, they put it in the data center and somebody pointed out that if the data set went down, you wouldn't be able to read the token to do the recovery. <laughs> so then they moved it. <laughs> good times. Good times. All right. Links in the show notes if you want to read up on it and maybe get yourself a free token. Uh, quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Backbox. Uh, the Backbox network automation platform is introducing its newest feature, Network Vulnerability Manager. As the number of critical vulnerabilities affecting network equipment goes up every year, engineers have to patch and upgrade faster and more frequently and manual vulnerability management, meaning that Excel spreadsheet or the Google Doc you're trying to keep updated just doesn't cut it anymore. So Backbox now combines network automation and network vulnerability management in a single platform. It's purpose-built for network teams to help you easily discover and prioritize network OS vulnerabilities according to risk, and that on my auto automatically remediate them. Uh, Backbox supports more than 180 vendors and thousands of devices, including switches, routers, firewalls, and more. You can find out how you can better automate and protect your network with Backbox. Get all the details at backbox.com slash packetpushers. That's backbox.com slash packetpushers. We thank Backbox for being a sponsor. 
All right, back to the news. MGM Resorts says that a breach that ground its casino and hotel operations to a halt in Las Vegas will have a negative impact of $100 million in its third quarter 2023 results. It appears that the loss is primarily due to the impact on customer-facing systems so it couldn't book guests into hotels and probably had a knock-on effect on casino revenues. Uh, MGM also says it expects little to no impact in Q4 and that soon everything will be back to normal. Uh, so cybercrime pays, right? <laughs> Somebody made money. They they took the whole thing down. My understanding is that uh, the attack has been widely covered in the press, and the, I think the basic outline of the attack was somebody social engineered their way into a system uh, via you know uh, a telephone call to an IT person and got a hold of their login, and then once they were in, they were able to escalate their privilege and eventually to wipe the entire data center in an attempt to get a ransom. Uh, it was widely covered. I didn't bring it onto the show because it. it you know nothing special about this particularly, but in this case, I think um, you know we often so I often talk here about security isn't worth it. Um, so if you test a test to take the reverse hypothesis here, does a hundred million in a losses sound like a lot, Drew? Do I, it would to me, yes. Yeah, it would. But what would be the cost of implementing better security in that sort of an environment, right? It's a fully regulated, heavily monitored. You've got third parties all over the place saying you can't do this, you can't do that. The gaming machines, this have to run in an environment because the gaming, the companies who provide the gaming machines create a whole custom, like defined special rules around it. The only way that they'll support these things mm. and they have to be connected this way and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. Um, my contrarian view would be to say, what would be the price of IT security if they had it done it better? Would it be more than a hundred million? And I think in the case of the casinos, you're talking about, it wasn't just one casino. It was the whole MGM group of casinos, which is, I think is four or five of them. Oh no, it's way more than that. The, no, no. It's, it's, that? Yeah. yeah. It's a, I'd like, it's a, it's a large number. I was looking at their properties, but they include Mandalay Bay, Bellagio, Luxor, Excalibur, mm. uh, and multiple others. So it's a, a large number of hotels and, and casinos. All right. I just and you know what I you know I haven't seen just just to take a contrarian view here. Um, do you think anybody's sort of saying to themselves, you know, all of that money we spent on security up until now, that's obviously been wasted? <laughs> well, <And> so, <laughs> so you know, so I, I because this is uh, having a material impact on their financial results, they had to file an eight K mm. uh, form mm. with the SEC Securities Exchange Commission, and so I read it, uh, and they say that they are assuming that their cyber insurance is going to cover. The hundred million dollar impact and any future expenses. So, well, okay. Well, look forward to that. <laughs> you don't think a cyber insurance company is going to be saying something about? Going to be saying? <laughs> yes, I think the auditors will definitely have some questions for them after they make this payout. Yes. Yes, I would think that they're going to be spending a lot of money on security going forward. From various articles I read during the recovery from the hack, my understanding is that the entire data center was wiped. Now, my thought, it was MGM who decided to do the wiping. It wasn't the attackers. They just came in and stole data. But MGM was like, yeah. all right, we just got to shut it all down and, and start over. How do you recover from that? Yeah. How do you yeah. know that they're not just, even if you paid it, there's no chance, there's always a chance they'll just come back and say, well, we're still in there. You have to pay yeah. again. <laughs> and that's what a lot of them are finding is even if they do choose to pay, thinking they're going to get away with it. Not all of the attackers are, you know, that ethical, as you might expect. Right. And sometimes try and blackmail you a second time thinking you've got more money to give them. So... I just the question here is just how many engineers. So my understanding is they hired in a lot of professional services from vendors, from resellers, from professional services organizations. Apparently they had them all in to try and help them rebuild it. They worked around the clock for about two weeks to get the the main systems back up, yeah. and now they're starting to work on you know what they're going to do going forward. But 
I don't know. If you think about it from the point of view that if all of their existing security spend was wasted because they still got hacked, even though they've been implementing security, you'd have to think about whether you want to spend money on security again, Drew. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Or just keep putting it into cyber insurance, uh, assuming assuming somebody will give you a policy after this. But yeah. I bet that the cyber insurance won't be writing them another policy without a whole bunch of deep terms and conditions. Yeah. But it'd be going to be like getting flood insurance in Florida at this point because. <laughs> yeah. I, I, my guess is for large corporations, whatever security you put in place will be whatever the uh, insurers ask you to do. Mm -hmm. and, and otherwise, a, a, nothing else on top. 100 million assumption. doesn't feel like a lot of money, though. Well, the yeah, fact that, you know, MGM says, yeah, we'll be fine in Q4 again, it tells you <laughs> that it's not really a yeah. lot for them. Yeah. I wouldn't be overspending on security in that environment, right? <laughs> Just Sure, you know, you shut down. The, it's an unimaginable thing. The Half of the Las Vegas was shut down, but nobody seems to care. To put this back, it's not just about MGM. It's about also the potential victims, which are probably you and me, um, because mm. uh, the, the, the uh, attackers did make off with things like driver's license information, names, addresses, social security numbers, so plenty of information to perpetrate identity theft. Uh, and as we mentioned, MGM encompasses a lot of popular hotels for conference goers, uh, so there's mm. a not insignificant chance that your NY details may have been exposed. Uh, MGM says it's going to send emails to, to customers that it knows were affected, so maybe keep an eye out on in your inbox for that. MGM's been hacked multiple times in the last two or three years. They've had that data has been stolen repeatedly, so that's not. <laughs> it's not, not really comforting, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> sorry, to, sorry. Right. But, yeah. All I want to say there is like, oh, again, exactly. <laughs> yes. So yeah. Yes. Yes, and of course they put out a statement saying that security is very important to them and they take it seriously. Yeah, and yeah, if you are affected, yeah, they yeah. will give you some free credit monitoring for the absolutely nothing that that is worth. Yada, 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 yada. They'd be crediting mon money monitoring from a company like Equifax, Drew. Oh, that's a nice tie-in because <laughs> Equifax is our next story. Well done. Okay. Uh, the regulatory fallout from a major breach can have a long tail. Case in point is Equifax, which was recently fined 11 million pounds or about 13 and a half million US dollars by a British regulatory agency. This was a fine uh, for a massive breach way back in 2017 uh, when sensitive financial information on 147 million US citizens was stolen. Apparently, Equifax also exposed data on about 14 million UK citizens, uh, and I guess six years or so on, the regulatory agency in the UK has decided to yeah. slap them with a penalty. Yeah, I'm going to skirt around the edges of uh, politics here. The first thing to note here is justice doesn't prevent crime. It's intended to deter crime. So you make crime less desirable by handing out some sort of punishment. And there's also an angle here that victims get a sense of restitution. So there's two points of what justice does. So when you go to court, so the purpose of the fine here is to tell other companies, as well as Equifax, that being insecure has a cost and hence impacts things like cyber insurance and how much you'll want to pay for your security and so forth. One of the things I note here is that the legal system seems to be very slow. Have you noticed that the legal system in the UK and the US seems to be um, getting increasingly slower. And I just observed that the right-wing governments that we've had here in the UK and in the US are both talk a lot about reducing funding for the courts because they think the courts are interfering in the everyday. And uh, it's increasingly possible for me to think that right-wing aligned entities are doing more crime and will want to do more crime. And they're, they're removing funding from the courts and governments so that they can less likely that they're going to be a court and be even if they do, the courts may not be able to process them effectively and so forth. Anyway, the point here is that corporate crime is not a priority. 
and took six years for this to go through the systems. And I think that is not necessarily a good message to be sending out to companies. I think um, the the defunding of the justice system as a way of, I don't know, just achieving some sort of right wing goal about intervening in people's lives. I'm not sure that that's actually the outcome that we that society wants. Well, I can already hear the keyboards firing up for the FU, so we'll, yeah, we'll stand by. Just skirting around the skirting around the politics here. I'm just I think you skirted. I think you stepped right into it, but that's <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> anyway, links in the show notes if you want to read about uh, Equifax. Um, okay. But this is our last story for the day. Uh, we've got an update on the Broadcom VMware acquisition potentially inching ever closer to completion. Greg. Yeah, there's a, a, a it, the article that I read refers to a, a website called Deal Reporter. Deal Reporter is a new real time news site, and it's only by subscription only. So I can't actually check the source, uh, but this uh, article is quoting that. There's a link in the show notes saying that the Chinese antitrust approval is expected soon. Broadcom has agreed to some sort of remedial tasks that meet the Chinese regulators' requirement, and it's expected very very soon. The deal spread has now narrowed to just seven seven dollars. Um, which means that the, the there must be some sort of confirmation or some agreement. It's not totally confirmed, but the, the the quote from the website goes, the China State Administration for Market Regulation is expected to shortly approve the acquisition of VMware with behavioral remedies, according to a deal reporter item on Thursday, which cited three sources familiar with the situation. Uh, I would say to you that Broadcom has a strong relationship with Chinese authorities. It does a lot of its manufacturing in China. Uh, a lot of its ASIC design is done in China and has major business there. And you could make a case that, that I think is reasonable that you're likely to get an more likely to get an acquisition through than perhaps with other US or Western businesses because of Broadcom's strong local links there. So it, it everybody I speak to about this expects the Broadcom purchase of VMware to go through by the end of October. They're still saying that. And that's becoming looking more and more likely. China is the last regulatory body. Um, and a big shout out to all the people at VMware. I know it's a tough time and Broadcom is not uh, doing things in the usual way. So I wish you all the best uh, and hope you get the option uh, that you you want to have, whether you want to stay or go. Yeah, I think there must be something to that analysis, given the current hostility between uh, the U.S. and China in terms mm. of uh, technology and technology companies um, that would, you know, I would assume based on the current relationship that they would be happy to throw sand in the gears, but uh, there may be yeah. other factors, including, you know, Broadcom's business dealings in China that that make the, the Chinese government willing to say, yeah, that's fine, we can, we can let this happen, as opposed to sticking another finger in the eye of the U.S. government. Mm. Broadcom was always an Asian company that re that grew into the US. Yeah. So I, I and it has strong ties with China. So I don't think it's uh, they've got relationships and they don't have technologies that nobody wants. If if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's not like it's they they make chips, but they make them in China rather than you know they don't make machines or whatever they and they do a lot of work in China. So you know it's hard to say that there's something else going on here. Yeah, and I'm sure VMware employees will be grateful when this acquisition finally goes through and they can move forward and, and find out uh, what the disposition of the company will be. Uh, and we're looking forward to the day when we can say the acquisition is finished and then start digging mm -hmm. into the, the what happens next. Yes, I would imagine customers are hearing various grumblings about we don't know what's happening and a lot of deals are being you know put on hold and stuff like that. So yeah. we'll see. All right, link in the show notes. Uh, that does wrap up the news portion of the uh, of the podcast. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation. We're talking with Palo Alto Networks about how they're using techniques like remote browser isolation and app acceleration uh, to keep your application safe and make them faster. That's coming right up.
Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're going to talk about techniques to improve user experience and application performance while also securing end users' applications and devices. Our sponsor is Palo Alto Networks, and we're going to talk about how Palo Alto Networks is integrating technologies such as remote browser isolation and application acceleration into Prisma Access. This is their cloud-delivered security offering. Uh, my guest is Siva Rajasekaran. He's Director of Product Management at Palo Alto Networks. Siva, welcome back to the podcast. So using context clues around RBI, it sounds like remote browser isolation means web content is being run remotely in an isolated environment, maybe a VM or a container, instead of directly on my laptop or PC. Is that correct? And if so, can you put more details around that? Absolutely, Drew. Thank you for having me here again. Remote browser isolation is an ability for customers to be able to execute the web content remotely on a browser, as opposed to bringing the content directly to the end user's machine. You may wonder why somebody would do that. It is definitely a way for being able to protect the endpoints from untrusted content that is out there in the internet. Okay, so I'm thinking like, you know, phishing scams or malware that's embedded in a website. I don't want that executing on an end user's laptop. So the idea is to have that execute somewhere else where it can be scanned and any malicious content removed. Yeah, we see that as, you know, one additional layer of, you know, defense. Traditional secure web gateways and the uh, secure web gateway offering that we have from Palo Alto Networks, customers have the ability to already classify different types of web categories um, as phishing, malicious, etc., and be able to take preventive actions and being able to protect the end users from being able to go to those phishing websites or access those malicious content. Not only that, with our advanced URL filtering that we get from Palo Alto Networks through our Prisma Access and our next-gen firewall platforms, even unknown URL categories through our deep learning techniques, we will be able to classify them and categorize them from unknown to a known category. So all this is good. At the same time, there will definitely be some websites, some applications, and for some special users, you may want to allow an unknown category or a category of high risk to be able to still be accessed from this machine. When you allow them, allow those special users, or when you allow those special applications to still be accessed by the end user, you don't want that content to be delivered to the end user's machine. So have them delivered through a remote browser, and that way, any web content that would have gotten executed on the end user machine, you prevent them from happening. That's the protection that you give for those special users and special use cases, which do not fall into the usual URL filtering, secure web gateway category of use cases. Okay, so I mean, maybe this sounds like kind of defense in depth strategy. What are some typical use cases if I want to bring RBI into the web security applications I've already got in place? Sure, Drew, I can give you a couple of use cases. You know, any high risk application, any category, which is an unknown category, like I talked about, uh, would get classified as a known category through our advanced URL filtering. And the best practice for all of these type of high risk applications, high risk uh, websites is to block them. And in some cases, you may have some users who would have to give an access to those special high-risk websites. What are those use cases? Uh, this would be, uh, you know, pen testers. This could be a security SOC incident analyst or someone who is trying to do a threat investigation or trying to gather evidences. In those cases, you know, blocking while it is the best security step, in these scenarios, you will have to allow the user to go through those web applications and um, do their investigation or whatever that additional step they want to carry out. How do you allow that to happen? And how do you do that without risking, putting your enterprise at risk is where uh, we feel that RBI is a very good way to provide you the defense in depth. 
Okay, so if I, a security researcher or a SOC or analyst or something needs to see what's happening on this website, they can do that investigation without endangering the entire organization because, again, that uh, web code is not being executed in the enterprise environment. It's being done in the cloud somewhere and in, I presume, a container or a VM. That is right, Drew. Yes, you're absolutely right. So how are you delivering RBI? Is this a separate service? How do I get it if I'm a Palo Alto Networks customer? Palo Alto Networks with our Prisma Access and Prisma SASE, one thing that we have taken upon ourselves is to provide customers with a unified cloud management console, one unified product that they can use to not only onboard users, but also manage configurations and manage entire operation end to end. So with that, what we are doing is we are um, adding this RBA capability completely fully integrated into our Prisma Access. And what it means for customers is when you identify those special users and some special websites for which you need to turn on remote browser isolation, you can do that directly from the same security policy that you're familiar with. No additional configurations required, no additional console required, everything done from one single place, the place that you're very familiar with in the Prisma Access Cloud Management Console. Okay, so this is a policy option I would set in that console that I'm already familiar with. And that sort of presages my next question about how am I as an administrator making sure that traffic is going to the RBI option? So you will have all the logs and you have the ability to also track every traffic flow based on user. So you can identify who's the user and from the logs you can also, and the traffic logs, you can also identify where the traffic is headed. So end-to-end solution provided through one unified management console uh, with the level of debug logs that is available for you to troubleshoot and uh, root cause if there are things that you need to identify and resolve. Okay, so that's the RBI portion of the conversation. Let's start talking about application acceleration. What is the driver here for adding application acceleration features? Any organization is making a choice here. They're making a choice of how do I provide the best security for my enterprise and how do I make sure my users are productive? Uh, you know, productivity and security are two aspects. And uh, many times when we have spoken to customers, we see that uh, they have to make a trade-off today. They make the trade-off in terms of, hey, if I want to get the best security, then I may have to compromise on some of the user experience that I want to provide for our end users. So this is a very bad state to begin with. You know, you want the best security and you don't want to compromise on the user experience when you achieve that best security. Uh, that is the biggest driver that we see for our application acceleration, Drew. That's an issue with security. We need to have security controls in place, but if users feel like they're introducing a bad experience, they'll find a way around them. And that's exactly what we don't want to happen because, you know, you have done the due diligence of, you know, identifying the best solution that suits your organization's security goals. You put that in place, you deploy them, but users are not on board. Users are not on board because it prevents them from doing the daily work. They will find ways to break away from those controls. And in the world that we have today, applications could be, you know, private applications, uh, legacy applications that could uh, use SMB type of protocols. And you also have like modern applications like Workday, Salesforce, uh, you know, more internet SaaS type of applications too. Regardless of the type of application, the user's expectation, I'm talking about the end user's expectation is they want to be able to access those applications um, as though they're connecting directly. Uh, in some cases, that experience that they're expecting is uh, even faster than direct-to-app experience. Uh, they want much faster experience. And uh, that is where, uh, with our app acceleration that we are introducing with Prisma Access, what we will be able to do for our customers and uh, through our customers to our end users is able to access those applications through network and application acceleration methods. That way, 
they get to enjoy that application, which is close to, or in some cases, better than direct to app experience itself. Okay, so you mentioned SaaS applications, legacy applications, private applications. You can provide acceleration capabilities for all of those? That is right, Drew. We will be able to provide applications across SaaS, internet, and private applications. Uh, We'll be able to provide them acceleration techniques. Uh, This could be acceleration at an application layer, and uh, also we could do acceleration at the network layer. The goal is very simple, getting the customers to not have to do the trade-off between user experience and security. So get the security that we have always been known for uh, without compromising on the user experience. You mentioned Prisma Access then is application acceleration a Prisma Access capability? It is a Prisma Access capability, Drew. Uh, This will become an option for customers to opt in where they can turn on this functionality. With this functionality, they will get the app acceleration capability. Are there particular applications or services that would benefit from application acceleration techniques? You know, I'll start with an example of an application such as uh, Salesforce. Uh, This is just one example, but you get it. Uh, There are like any number of applications. um, You would be able to do this app acceleration technique to provide the fastest experience for end users. Let's pick Salesforce. Now, Salesforce is an application many users are familiar with. And that's an application where you would run some queries, you would generate some reports, you would view those dashboards. All of this operation generally takes time. And if you look at where does it take the most time, it is the Salesforce application itself. It is not the end user's machine. It is not the Wi-Fi to which they're connected to. Uh, it is not even the internet. It is also not the security stack through which they're going through. It is the application itself that is introducing this latency. And, uh, uh, you know, the more easier for you to relate to would be if I say hey, you don't have to run Salesforce in the cloud, you take the Salesforce app, run it very close to you, or even run it on your laptop. You still do the same operation of running the query, generating the report to view the dashboards. It would still be slow. And that is what we are talking about. And that is what we want to address. And how are we addressing it is by doing our app acceleration on the Salesforce app. We are monitoring real users traffic to Salesforce and using the real users monitoring. We identify the TCP optimization that we should do for those fields. And uh, once that optimization is done, we are able to give you and your end users the direct to app experience and access to those SaaS applications like Salesforce or Prisma Access to be the fastest. Again, going back to what we just talked about earlier, there are multiple ways to provide the best end user experience. And one way to do this would be to, to look at the end user's machine, define and run some pops closer to the end user so that they get connected to the closest edge and do the processing there. And also look at the security stack itself and then make it better and make it optimized to process different types of application traffic. We have been doing all of that. And based on customer input, what we are uh, coming to a conclusion is, while all of these steps definitely help, but it is not sufficient enough to provide the end user that experience that they're looking for. And that is why our app acceleration, uh, with the optimization that we do at every traffic flow, we are able to give that experience. The outcome that the end users would experience would be far better than the optimization that you may have tried at different layers we just talked about earlier. Am I also able to get you know visibility into application performance using these application acceleration techniques? Because I'm thinking of the use case where if an app is slow, the first thing you're just going to do is you know send in a ticket saying, hey, the network is slow, whether it's the network or not. So are you able to extract metrics for that you know sort of troubleshooting or uh, investigation capability? That is right, Drew. With our autonomous digital experience management and the app acceleration that we're doing now, what we will be able to provide for our customers is that visibility of what is a traffic flow 
and also a segment-wise insights into where the experience of the end user is poor. Uh, with that level of visibility and also the performance for that application, uh, we can give the customer the view that they want as they understand how has the application performance improved with the, the new app acceleration that we're introducing. And this application acceleration capabilities, does that require uh, a lot of configuration and tinkering by customers on the end user's laptops or on gateways and so on? Or is that, you know, uh, again, going into the console and clicking some fields? No, we don't want our customers to go through that trouble of uh, rolling out agents and enabling uh, configurations and setups. And as much as possible, we want to reduce the amount of effort our customers would, would have to take to enjoy this app acceleration. So uh, we have minimized it. There's only a couple of controls that they will have to enable. Um, beyond that, uh, this should be like seamless for end users and uh, very easy for administrators to turn this on. Okay, well, we've uh, run up uh, against the end of our time, Siva, but if folks want to get more details about all of the things we talked about or about just uh, SD-WAN and, and cloud-delivered security, uh, where should they go? Oh, yeah. So there is a couple of options there. Uh, immediately, they can tune into our SASE Converge. That's an event that's happening on November 15th and 16th. That's one option. And um, alternate option is always reach out to the Palo Alto Networks account rep who would be able to put you in touch with uh, the folks in the product management side here. We'll be happy to walk through this in detail and give you detailed product demos. Okay, the SASE Converge event, that's a live event, but I can also attend uh, online. Is that correct? That is correct, Drew. Okay, so if you're interested, that's sassyconverge.paloaltonetworks.com if you want to sign up one more time, sassyconverge.paloaltonetworks.com, taking place November 15th and 16th, 2023. You can find that link in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Thanks, Siva, for joining us, and thanks to Palo Alto Networks for being a sponsor of Packet Pushers. If you like this episode, you can find it and many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. Uh, connect with other network engineers and IT professionals on our Slack channel. You you can also follow us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and if you would, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.